Blog Talk Radio. Again, Chuck Morse, Monday through Friday, Chuck Morse Speaks. Welcome to the program, Monday through Friday, that is noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You're welcome to join me live here at uh, Blog Talk Radio, 347-327-9849. That number again is 347-327-9849. In our number two, we shall be joined by... Uh, Her- Herman Caswell, who is the uh, producer of Atlas Shrugged Part 2. And we will ask Herman, is Atlas shrugging or is America shrugging as we approach within hours, within days, probably the most momentous election in American history? Well, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but let's just say the most momentous election since the election of 1912, which uh, resulted in an extreme change in the way that the American people governed themselves. This is another one of those elections. Uh, in 2008, Barack Hussein Obama was elected, and if there was one positive aspect to that, one attribute that we could point to, and there are a few, I mean, Barack Obama has not been terrible. I'm not one of those who uh, who ascribes to that. But the one positive aspect, and I, I say this only in the context that this is what the, the mainstream media was telling us for a year at least, if not a year and a half uh, before that election, um, and, and that is that he was black, that that is a significant development because it proved that a black man could be the president of the United States, um, I think that the American people had certain preconceived notions with regard to what it would be like to have a black man as the president of the United States. And those preconceived notions were very positive. I think we expected a certain stereotype of African-American men in Barack Obama, and that was someone who was super smart, super tough, super strong, a superhero, in other words, and, of course, Barack Obama is not that. No one is. These are stereotypes. Uh, but yet he is very bright and very articulate and very able. And there, there's no question that, um, that this, is, this is, uh, was a momentous development. But, of course, now here we are four years later. We have seen the direction in which the country has drifted for four years. And we're now examining whether or not to... Um, in a sense, you know, what uh, go back to what, what Warren Harding said in 1920, a return to normalcy. And, of course, Warren Harding, even though he's gone down in history as a bad president, he won one of the largest landslide elections in, in history up until that point. And he uh, immediately returned the country to or attempted to roll back the radical changes that took place in 1912 to the best that he could. And the result was an, a, a, a 10 years of prosperity. Of course, we could talk about what happened after that. But the point is that I think that this, this election reminds me of some of the same dynamics that took place at that time. And um, 
it means that, uh, you know, the course of history could be changed and changed dramatically. You know, I mean, these things do matter. History doesn't just happen by itself. I'm not one of those who ascribes to um, Oswald Spengler's theory of nations, which is that the nation state has the lifespan of an individual in terms of it being born and then and then growing up, going through puberty, becoming an adult, and the and the height of its powers and its intellectual and physical strength, and then gradually declining until it dies. Uh, you know, I think that we can change and alter the course of history. Life is is a series of uh, ups and downs, renewals and reversals. That's that's just the way it goes, and that we can have a renewal and we can continue to do so. Anyway, we're going to take a brief break. We've got a guest on the line. Uh, please stay tuned, and uh, we shall be back shortly. Hello, who's on the line? Oh, hi, it's Harmon Caslow. Atlas oh, Shrug. hi, Harmon. I thought you were our number two, but that, we'll be right back. I'll introduce you. Okay. <laughs> And we are back. You're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks. You're welcome to join the program, of course. Um, and um, you can do that by email, which is uh, number 4 at gmail.com. We're joined by Harmon Caslow. He is the uh, direct producer of Atlas Shrugged Part 2. Harmon, thanks for joining me this afternoon. Hey, how are you today? Good. Your movie is now out. How's it doing? We're doing okay. I uh, we're uh, we're in about 150 theaters right now. Uh people want to see us. Now's the time to go do it. Uh mm-hmm. it's a great way to take an undecided voter to kind of see the path that we're on if we uh you know continue with this uh, uh president that has this collectivist kind of socialist uh way of governing us. Uh, you can see the results if uh if Greece and Spain aren't indicators enough for you. You know, Harmon, uh, Ayn Rand took a drubbing during this election by people on the far left, as you know. Um, Not not only that, did you see the Rolling Stone article? (laughs) No, I didn't. No, seriously. Well, you heard about the president, right? Right, yeah, with his comments about Yeah, he he talked about Ayn Rand in that interview. Oh, boy. Gee, what did he say? Well, it's clear that uh, he has has never read Atlas Shrugged or Ayn Rand. None and, of these people have. And, right, and so you know he fell into this kind of Saul Alinsky tactic that he uh, seems to use so often, which is you know attacking the messenger and not the message, and uh, repeated and regurgitated what other people said who haven't read Ayn Rand, and uh, you know said that her work is simply about greed and selfishness, and and the truth is, Ayn Rand's work rails against greed, and so. Uh, He's brought it right back into the discussion. I mean, you know, it's it's right there. People go look at it, the uh, the Rolling Stone article. No, that that's amazing because I've had a string of left wingers on this program, including my former co-host, railing about Ayn Rand and this claim that uh, Paul Ryan is a secret Ayn Rander. And and one of the things that they don't seem to get about he he is, and, he and is there's no problem. I mean, he believes in capitalism. Capitalism should not to... be a dirty word. Of course not, and I think that uh, you know now you have uh, President Obama. Even though he may be trying to denigrate Ayn Rand, he's trying to position himself as if he's conservative in those debates because he knows that um, 
publicly taking left-wing causes is not going to resonate with with average people. It's just, it's just not the way it goes. But there's one thing that I think we should get to philosophically, which the which the, those who criticize Ayn Rand miss, and that is and putting aside Ayn Rand as a person and her immediate coterie of followers. That's another mm-hmm. story. But but her, I'm talking about her philosophy. That that they are superimposing their own authoritarian, uniformal, conformist views on Ayn Rand and her followers when they say, well, you support Ayn Rand, which assumes that everybody is conforming to the whole ball of wax that Ayn Rand advocated, when in fact most people who do admire Ayn Rand, myself included, and I have read her books, uh, do not subscribe to various things that she advocated, nor would she expect us to, because she supports the individual. She's not into this idea of being a cult leader that everyone kind of goose steps along and and uh, salutes, which is exactly what the left is into. They're into the cult. So they're superimposing what they're about onto Ayn Rand followers. Like, for example, you mentioned Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan was influenced by Ayn Rand's novels and her political treatises when he was in college, and it helped him decide. It, it, it actually led him in the direction of getting a degree in economics and developing economic uh, strategies in, in the Congress based upon what he had learned. But he does not subscribe to Ayn Rand's radical atheism. You know, he's a, he's a practicing <clears throat> Catholic, and he takes a pro-life position on abortion. Ayn Rand was radically pro-choice. So, I mean, my point is that uh, because someone is influenced by and they admire aspects of Ayn Rand and her work, that doesn't mean that they buy into her and follow her the way the left follows their leaders. No, that yeah, that's correct. And, you know, uh, Paul Ryan, you know, he he believes, just like Ayn Rand, that there's a moral basis for capitalism, yeah. that capitalism made this country and the world work, and for all practical purposes, you know, Ayn Rand wrote the book, the Bible, on capitalism, and so you know, it just it, it's part of you know the fear that if people begin to embrace what Atlas Shrugged represents that that will undermine this you know you owe me agenda that the left is uh, trying to oppose on us and which is really killing this country absolutely and i think that you mentioned the you own me that was that very revealing remark by obama at that uh, when he was delivering a speech where he said you didn't build that somebody else built that the idea being that the government did it as if the government somehow is uh which, by the way, the government only can do anything because they receive uh, taxpayer money from those who create the wealth. The taxpayer is no, not the government. Right. You know, the the, the message of Alice Shrugged, uh, it rails against collectivism and socialism. It describes what happens when the, the state gets out of control. And, you know, the heroes in Atlas Shrugged are the ones that are screaming, I did build that. And... The government has vilified them to a point where the idea of disappearing and leaving becomes far more uh, desirable than continuing to fight these forces. Uh, okay, my guest is – yeah, yeah, wait, 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 I'm getting a message in my, in my head. Oh, here we go. My guest is Harmon Caslow, producer of Atlas Shrugged Part 2. Uh, 
Um, we're talking about Atlas Shrugged Part 2, which is now out in the movie theaters. You're welcome to join the conversation, 347-327-9849. That number again is 347-327-9849. Harmon, do you think we have reached the point in our nation and in our society where Atlas is shrugging? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you're seeing, um, you know, examples, are, you know, around you, uh, you, 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 you know, you saw what Steve Wynn was saying. I mean, here's a guy uh, who's employed hundreds of thousands of people. He's a successful yep. entrepreneur. He even voted for Obama in 2008. He's effectively moved all of his operations over to China uh, and, and basically came out and said, if this guy's elected, I'm going to shrug. If this guy Siegel uh, has done the same thing. Uh, even when Steve Jobs was alive and he met with uh, you know, President Obama, I mean, he told him two things. He said, number one, if you don't get out of the way of business, you're going to be a one-term president. And number two is, unless you change the environment, I'm going to do all of this this productive work that a Apple could be doing here, we're going to continue to do over in China. So, you know, th those are just three examples that, that are probably would cover, you know, almost a million people who could be working in this country. That's right. And I think that what 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 we're seeing now is really the opportunity to really change the direction of the country in that we have a, an actual businessman. I mean, Mitt Romney reminds me of some of the characters in, in Atlas Shrugged, you know, particularly Reardon. You know, yeah, I mean, here's a guy who, uh, you know, ha has been able to build, you know, a, a large pile of wealth. He is not... He is not a villain for doing that. Uh, I wish he would explain to people that his uh, 13 or 14 percent tax rate uh, is on money that had already been taxed at, at, at somewhere in the 28 to 35 percent range anyway. So right. he's nearly, you know, his wealth has nearly been taxed 50 percent. It's just being taxed at different sources, and yet. People look at him and they're like, "Going, listen, you, you haven't, you're not paying your fair share," uh, oh, which is God. another concept right out of uh, of Alice Shrugged. Oh, absolutely, and it shows how utterly hypocritical the whole thing is, anyways. Because if Obama and the liberals wanted to raise the capital gains tax, they could advocate for that, but they don't because they know it would be economically a disaster. And uh, so Mitt Romney pays the tax that is is codified in in the law. And that includes the law put forth and advocated by Obama, and right. by Democrats and, and it's available Congress. to anybody. I mean, it's, it's not exclusive to millionaires. I mean, people can uh, invest in the stock market or invest in any sorts of vehicles that that they want to. That would that would generate passive income for for them. That's what he's done. There's no law against it. Um, and, and and yet again, you know, this is. Uh, you know, it, 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 there, there was an article that just came out about, I don't know, about seven or eight major Hollywood stars that probably all make ten-plus million a year. And they all were saying, you know what, we would pay more in taxes because um, that will help the economy. Mm -hmm. and, and I can tell you he's the producer of this movie, okay, which yeah. we employed about 400 people, okay, to produce this movie. We created literally 400 new jobs to produce the movie. What those 
actors should realize that instead of sending their money to Washington that they desire to do, okay, that yep. will not create any jobs, what they should do is go fund a movie that has a message, a message as powerful as the one of Atlas Shrugged, and in that process, 100% of the money is going to go towards employing people. There's a one-to-one ratio of doing that. And for them to think that the government can somehow do it better than them just indicates that maybe our problem is with our educational system and that we haven't taught people the economics of a free market capitalistic society. No, absolutely. I mean, the the other hypocritical aspect, of course, to that is that if these people want to pay more taxes, and Mitt Romney brought this up during the debate, they can. There's a special box that has been put on the income tax return. They can check it off and pay more taxes. Of course, none yeah, of them are actually doing that. I mean, they're, they're right, doing right. The government doesn't does. have to do it. If you feel that that's yeah. a, a benevolent act on your part, uh, you know, go ahead and do it. And and in fact. That, again, is another theme right out of Atlas Shrugged, which is that people can act benevolently. People will act in their rational self-interest if they want in their community to help certain classes of people or in, in certain endeavors. They are free to do that. The government doesn't need to come in and do it. They'll do it. Why? It makes their community better and stronger and more desirable for them. And and this whole idea that um you know, we're entitled to something something from the government simply because we exist is really gonna be the killer of the American dream. Exactly. All right, we're joined by Harmon Caslow. He is the producer of Atlas Shrugged Part Two, which is now available quite presciently in theaters nationwide. Over 150 theaters. You could go to their website, Atlas Shrug Part Two. Uh, and, Atlas uh, Shrug Movie. Atlas Shrug Movie. Atlas Shrug Movie. Thank Dot you, com. Harmon. Yeah. Thank and uh, and then see where if and where it's playing near you. If it's not, then ask your theater to get it. Uh, this is the time to see it. Two weeks before the election, if there ever was a time, because uh, we're looking at very much an, an Atlas Shrug scenario. I believe in this country, and I think that that's becoming more apparent to people all the time. You know, they saw how Mitt Romney was the main focus of the Obama campaign was to demonize Mitt Romney for being a capitalist, for being successful. And, of course, the sickening irony of that is that, um, you know, you see this ugly attack and and and, and comedy about how rich he is. I mean, John Kerry was three times richer than Mitt Romney, and he was uh, probably the richest man in the history of Congress. He was a nominee in 2004, except... Rather than doing as Mitt Romney did, which was work his backside off for 20 years to uh, create this wealth and create this company from really very a small company to a trillion-dollar company, I mean, Kerry is, is living off of his second wife's first husband's trust fund. You know, oh, yeah. so, well, I mean, I guess John the, McCain was no different. I mean, he married uh, you know, a well, woman you that go. I think had a net worth of over $100 million, too. Yeah, so, I, know, I don't. I don't even recall that being brought up. I don't know why they probably should. I mean, I would think that they would have brought it up. But you know, I mean, look at the Kennedys. I mean, they never worked a day in their life. You know, they're living off the old man's uh, booze and and drug. You know, running. I mean, right. we could go on. Al Gore, talk about silver spoon in his mouth. No, look at. I'm not against that, but I'm just saying that. Uh, 
you know, the, the way the way conservatives generally obtain their wealth is through earning it. It's, it's not so much this, uh, you know, the liberals who seem to have a, a propensity for uh, inheriting or, or marrying the wealth. Again, that's their right. I'm not against it. That's part of our freedom. But you can take a look at how someone earned their money. And Mitt Romney earned his by, by taking risks and going out there and creating this incredible business. And they're denigrating it. And when they do denigrate it, they denigrate not only capitalism, but they're denigrating all of us. We all want to have opportunities like Mitt Romney. We want to have, you know, we want to achieve more. We'll never maybe achieve that kind of wealth, but we want to achieve everything that we can in our life. And when they denigrate Mitt Romney for being successful, they are denigrating in a, a system, I think, that that allows for for that. I mean, I, I just want to impress that upon people. Yeah. No. And 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 it, the, the irony is is that. Uh, it, it is a it it is right out of Atlas Shrugged, where you you, you want to create guilt to the to the producers of the world uh, as a way of the government being able to control them. That there is a fear, the the people in power, that if someone gets too much wealth, that that then will undermine you know, their power. And there are so many examples in American business. The, the, the most recent glaring example was uh, you know, when Microsoft was attacked by the government, okay, mm-hmm. and they were attacked by the government saying it was unfair that uh, <clears throat> they bundled you know their their browser with their operating program on your on your screen, and they went ruthlessly went after this this company. Why? Because Microsoft was printing money at that point in time. Okay. Yeah. Microsoft now is at a point where if this Windows 8 doesn't take off, there's a real fear that this kind of, that Microsoft may, you know, diminish in its stature. And now you begin to see where the government is beginning to look at Google as, you yeah. know, what what's going on there. And and again, if you go and look, it, it, there's a passage in uh, in Atlas Shrugged. We also had it in Atlas Shrugged Part One, where the government was attacking uh, this Henry Reardon, this this industrialist right. who basically came up with this uh, miraculous uh, metal, and the government you know said to him, "Go listen, either the metal presents a physical danger or a social danger, okay? And what mm-hmm. we see is the government." going after successful businessmen and businesses that present a social danger simply because they're successful. Because they exist. And, and, and because they the exist. They created the wealth from nothing because of their ideas or their ability to harness ideas and market ideas. And that, exactly. And that, uh, you know, you say that the whole thing is based upon upon guilt. I mean, I think it's also, and I want to address that, but it's based upon people's the worst side of people's human nature, which is greed and and envy, and that, in other words, they're telling well, and power. That, it's about the government well, well, feeling the government their power us, threatened. But what the left tells us when they say, you know, you should be hating somebody like Mitt Romney because of his success, is they're saying, hey, look at the guy down the street has a snazzier car than you have. He's got a bigger house than you have. And that's not fair. You're, you should get a piece of that action, not because you did anything to earn it, but just because it bothers you, because he has more than you, and we're going to come in and make sure we ding him so that you can feel better. 
I mean, that's what it comes down to. It's, it appeals to the worst, darkest side of our, all of our human nature, you know, it, 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 rather than a positive side, which is the fact that because the guy down the street has a better car, he's created wealth across the country, both in terms of consuming that car, buying the car, which employed people and created things, and, uh, and just the, the process of his obtaining the wealth, which, which enriched everybody, including the guy down the street. I mean, the whole thing is a, it, it's an inverse of not only reality, but it's, an, it's immoral. I mean, this exactly. idea that we should, what we should covet. In a sense, this is one of the Ten Commandments. Don't covet your neighbor's property. Don't covet your neighbor's wife in that case. But, you know, it's, uh, you know they're, they're encouraging covetousness. You know, in other words, we are going to come out, we're going to get our piece of the action. And it also, economically speaking, it's, it's a complete falsehood because it, it, it is based upon the premise that of scarcity and that money, which is an abstract value, is scarce. It, it's finite. In other words, it only, there's only so much money that can exist, so therefore it has to be evenly divided. When in fact, and Ayn Rand points this out in some of her economic treatises, that money is infinite. Money is an abstract value that's an expression of human creativity. And the more creative people are, the more money is, is there. Money is just printed to make up, to, to keep pace with with invention and, and development, whether that invention be the, uh, writing a new symphony or whether it be building a new skyscraper. So, you know, we should encourage an expansion capital. I mean, that's that's part of the creative process. It's an infinite thing. Right. And, and, it's, and it's all about the, um, the, the ethical creation as opposed to the fraudulent creation. So right. she recognizes and distinguishes between crony capitalism and being industrious and hardworking and the ethical creation of wealth. And, oh, and, absolutely. And really, I mean, in, in part two of the movie, you, you yep. see that uh, well, you know, one of the philosophers you know, in the story is this Francisco D'Ancona gives a great speech about, uh, about money. And I think that entrepreneurs, uh, hardworking people, people that get up every every morning and they go out and they work hard and they're pursuing the American dream, you know, ethically, they are going to love Atlas Shrugged. They're going to love the movie. Um, but but anybody uh, in your audience who believes that they're entitled to something from the government simply because they exist are going to reject and hate Atlas Shrugged and shouldn't go see it. They're, they're going to get nothing out of that experience. But it's such a great opportunity for people to take the undecided voter, the person right there in the middle who doesn't really comprehend and understand what's going on, take them go see Atlas Shrugged, get them to read the book. It will open up their eyes, and the decision will become crystal clear as to the direction this country should go. Absolutely, and I think that maybe the Obama people are very cynically trying to – they're attacking Ayn Rand because, first of all, they, they need to appeal to their base, which is people who are dependent on the government, who want that to continue. And I'm not just talking about welfare. I'm talking about people who are member, who are in public unions. And, again, this isn't against public employees. This is against those who think that they're entitled to, to that employment and that they, they should be getting more benefits. They don't consider the fact that – that their bread and butter is put there by the taxpayers, the working people. Right. And and then also the fact that most people are ignorant about Ayn Rand. They have no idea. Exactly. They have not read her novels. The novels are, are very popular. Have been. They were bestsellers the minute they came into the market in 1959, 
and they've continued being, but nevertheless, average people across this country have no idea about Ayn Rand, so they can vilify her and hold her up and say, look at this evil person, right-wing extremist, blah, 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 and maybe kind of generate the kind of hatred that uh, that most politicians, unfortunately, whether they be left or right, they need to resort to in order to consolidate their power and their base. Yeah. Well, listen, the movie's in theaters. Yep. Uh, go to our website, atlasshrugmovie.com. Check it out. If you've got questions, we've got a little uh, you know, way for you to for people to get a hold of us. Uh, appreciate the the time and work that you're doing, and and let's all hope that we can right America's ship uh, on election day and get ourselves back on course and uh, restore really the constitutional republic that right. the founding fathers of this country uh, envisioned when they right had on. the courage. All right, Harmon, thanks so much for joining me. That's Harmon Castle, producer of Atlas Shrugged Part 2, Atlas Shrugged Movie. Please, please uh, stay tuned. We'll take a brief break. Three four seven three two seven nine eight four nine. Three four seven three two seven nine eight four nine is the number. What is on your mind this afternoon? Obviously, it's less than two weeks until a huge election, one of the most momentous in the history of the United States, one that could very well change the way we govern ourselves, as I like to say. And I would just love to hear from you. What are you thinking? Pro, con, middle, undecided? Where are you with all this? Come on down. 347-327-9849. 347-327-9849. I should take this opportunity to throw in a quick and, if you don't mind, shameless plug for my book. My book, The Monkey Trial, is now available on my website, nowhere else can you get this book because it's a PDF it being issued in advance of its publication, which could happen anytime between now and, any, and two years, so I'm not going to wait. The book is called The Monkey Trial, Evolutionary Politics in the Post-Traditional Age. 375, you get a PDF of the book. This is a 137-page book, 91,000 words. Um, let me just read the blurb. What the heck? This is a synopsis. In the Monkey Trial, author and radio talk show host Chuck Morse examines the political and social consequences of the theory of evolution. Using the closing statement of William Jennings Bryan in the Scoves Trial, the Monkey Trial, which was known as the Trial of the Century, Morse highlights the relevance and impact of the theory of evolution on society today. The book is not about creationism per se. As the focus of this book is on the political and social principle embedded within the theory of evolution, while the author questions the science of evolution. The emphasis of this book is on the post-evolutionary emergence of eugenics, Nazism, and communism, and the role that the theory of evolution played in the developments of those social and political movements. Chuck Morse is the host of the nationally syndicated radio talk show Chuck Morse Speaks, and is the author of The Nazi Connection to Islamic Terrorism, published by World Net Daily Books, 
and a Whig Manifesto published by Trine Day Books. The Morrison's columns have appeared in the Boston Globe, the Washington Times, the Providence Journal, WND, Newsmax, and elsewhere. Morse, who lives in Boston, ran for Congress in 2004 against Representative Barney Frank. This is a quick review of the book by Babe Huggett, who was a radio talk show host actually on, on Blog Talk Radio. A very impressive book by a very impressive writer. Keep up the excellent research and writing. Congrats on connecting some very important and truly evil dots for us all. When I tell my socialist indoctrinated friends over here in the U.K. that the Nazis were the greenest political system in the world had ever seen, and that it was they who invented environmentalism as a way to divorce their conquered people from their countryside in the blood and soil program, my friends freak big time. Always fun at parties. <laughs> anyway, check it out. You could go to the blog site, which is uh, Chuck Morse Speaks. Just put in my name in the server, Chuck Morse, or Chuck Morse Speaks. And up comes the blog site, and you can take a look at this book and the review of it, and you can buy it. It's only $3.75. I will personally email it to you if you order it. And you can certainly include in that any particular observations you might have regarding this program. What the heck, right? Election 2012, what it comes down to. This is another blog that I have posted. I've got about 300 articles up on the site, by the way. You can read any of them anytime. What it comes down to is an honest examination of the last four years of the Obama administration and an accompanying synopsis of what to expect in the next four years if Barack Obama is reelected. The three areas of analysis, the three areas that most affect our lives and our future, are Obama's economic record, his foreign policy record, and his support for the Constitution. Regarding the economy, we are told that the continuing recession, the unemployment rate, which is the highest in, and the most prolonged since the Great Depression of the 1930s, the high price of commodities such as gas and oil, the increase in poverty and public assistance, and the dangerous expansion of the debt and deficit due to an unprecedented and historic high is the fault of George W. Bush. In real terms, Bush's economic policies are no more relevant than those of William Howard Taft or Benjamin Harrison. Obama is the president, and he has been president for almost four years. The only relevant question before us is the value of his economic policy and how that policy has affected working people, regardless of the hand he inherited. Instead, indeed, Obama has continued to do exactly what he has criticized George Bush for doing, and that is borrowing trillions of dollars to prop up the public sector. The result has been an increase in unemployment for working people, an atmosphere that has discouraged investment and expansion, and a debt that now endangers the entire economy and nation. Obama has essentially promised to continue on the path to further spending if he is reelected, what is being called a new New Deal. Unlike his predecessors, both Democratic and Republican, Obama has proven to be either unwilling or incapable of making any deals with Congress. Obama's foreign policy has been one of moral weakness, which has led to an increase in anti-Americanism around the world. A lack of American political and moral leadership in the world has contributed to economic destabilization in much of Europe and the advance of Islamic radicalism. His policy has contributed to the enthronement of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, has caused the murder of Christopher Stevens, the American ambassador to Libya, 
and three other Americans on September the 11th, 2012. Obama's escalation of the war in Afghanistan has led to a quagmire there that is comparable to that of Vietnam. Obama failed to address the trade deficit with China and has continued with trade policies that have contributed to the continued draining of American industry, investment, and jobs overseas. On the constitutional front, Obama has demonstrated contempt for the Constitution by means of executive orders, orders that have done an, an end run around Congress. The most egregious example is an executive order issued by Obama on March 16, 2012, which would turn over the national, national resources to the president in the event of a vaguely defined emergency. The National Defense Resources Preparedness Order turns over to the president virtually all aspects of the means of production. This dastardly act is obviously unconstitutional, and there is no reason not to assume that such strong-manned actions would not be ac accentuated in a second Obama term. When it comes down, what it comes down to is whether or not we Americans want to see our nation continue its slide in an authoritarian direction where our political dominance and our economic prosperity are dumbed down to match much of the rest of the world. This has been done under Obama and will continue to be done through the further incursion of massive debt, the further contraction of our domestic economy through massive tax increases and onerous business regulations, the policy of appeasement and apology abroad, and the erosion of our national and constitutional rights as a sovereign people. So that's one of my posts. It's up, uh, I actually posted it a while ago, but uh, you're certainly welcome to check it out. This is from Eric Erickson, Red State News. Excellent, excellent daily update. I urge people to get Eric Erickson's redstate.com. Regardless of your political orientation, he is insightful. His, his uh, work is influential and important. This is about the last Obama commercial, which is a pathetic, awful attempt, I think, to try to capture a couple of votes. At this point, it looks to me like Obama is scrounging for votes. I think he's given up on getting the middle class. You know, he's given up on, uh, on, on that which he can't get. So he's, he's looking to try to get it. First of all, it's very insulting to the intelligence and sensibility of young people. Uh, it, it's a vote that shows a young lady, Lena Dunham. She's uh, sitting in a living room, it looks like, or somewhere. She's, her left arm is completely tattooed. Do you know this is to the tattooed and pierced crowd? Um, and, and I don't know what percentage of the electorate that is. I don't know how many of them are actually registered to vote. And of those who are, how many of them are actually going to turn out? I don't know. I mean, how many votes could that be? And how many people is it going to alienate with that? Probably people who already are not supporting them, admittedly. But um, I would think that it would alienate uh, more women because apparently Mitt Romney has closed the gender gap. So here it is. There seems to be no new low to which President Obama will sink in his desperate attempt to win re-election. One has to wonder... Is there any point at which the mainstream media and the public get some self-respect and toss out this loser? First, he asks for your, your wedding gifts, then your yard sales, 
and now he has asked for your daughters. Just in case you didn't watch Obama's newest ad, and who could really blame you? It's aimed at young female voters who may be virgin voters. The actress gushes about how special the first guy should be and how you wouldn't want to show up at a party and be discovered as being not ready, unquote. A lot of of double entendres there, right? Lena Dunham allows herself to be used in this cheap, last-minute attempt to be the first for young women. Dunham, who was raised in a wealthy, over-sexualized household and who started therapy at age seven, must must somewhat be forgiven for her role. She seems to have a thing for talking about her first time. The Obama administration was just happy to oblige. The problem is, this is an adult man with two young daughters who should know better. Perhaps it's just another message to be transmitted to to Vladimir through, ironically, though ironically, Obama's virgin ad, as it has been dubbed, isn't the first. Earlier this year, Prime Minister Vladimir Putin released two ads urging young women to make sure their first time is with somebody they love. The mainstream media labeled the ads creepy and were clearly turned off by the inappropriate propaganda. Now the question is, what excuse will the media and the left find to justify their president mimicking the leader of Russia? He may not win re-election, but he most certainly has won the award for degrading what should be the highest office in this country. So there you have red state. (laughs) Oh, boy. I mean, you know, tacky, really gross. Let's see what else. Cheap tricks and one-night stands. This is another blog from Eric Erickson. Should have him on the show. If you needed further proof about just how much the president has cheapened the presidency, consider this latest ad, which not only compares voting for him with the first time to lose, oh, this is about the same thing, but we'll read it, with losing virginity, but also ridicules those who might not want to lose their virginity to just any politician. This is the peer group peer pressure people across the political aisle have complained about in high school for years. But our president is adopting it as a last-minute campaign strategy. If you need any further proof, we live in a fallen world destined for hellfire. Consider the number of people who have no problem with the president of the United States via a campaign ad ridiculing virgins and comparing sex to voting. Oh, my God. You know, how desperate can you get? This is the man who once said children were a punishment. At least we know he's cool with abortion. (laughs) I wouldn't punish my daughters if they needed to have an abortion, punish them with a baby. The reason Barack Obama is running this ad is because he is done trying to get independent voters. He's given up. Despite campaign rhetoric about fighting for evangelicals, he's given up there. He's given up on Catholic voters. He's given up on the South. He's given up on men 
who have daughters. He's given up on moms. He's given up on everyone except his core base of singles, gays, and minorities, including college kids he is desperate to get back to the polls. I don't see this ad helping him among remaining swing voters, including women in Ohio, Iowa, and Wisconsin. Many of them still want a president who upholds the honor and dignity of the office without the pretension of trying to be the cool kid. On the bright side, he could have done nothing to better solidify those leaning toward Romney in the last two weeks of the campaign. About the only honest bit of innuendo in this ad is the people who voted for Barack Obama in 2008 have been screwed economically. The problem for Barack Obama is that many of these people believe their vote for him as a one-night stand, and they'd prefer to forget. Additionally, we know that now that Barack Obama, like that one-night stand, probably won't call you back. Just ask him the American consulate in Benghazi. Ooh, that's tough. Ah, man. So this is Eric Erickson. Let's see what else he has. Not all pretty below the headlines. Voter ID. I I don't know if anyone's seen this. Um, You know, James um, O'Keefe, he's at it again. He's a a great kind of street-level reporter who does these sting operations in a way that's very similar to what what 60 Minutes used to do back when they had some some muscle, in that he he and others go undercover and they, they catch people doing stuff, and then they film it and record it and then run it. Um, last year, it was the year before, they actually undid ACORN by going to several ACORN offices around the country and filming the ACORN people in those offices, he posing as a pimp and his it, it, this woman posing as a prostitute, that being Hannah Giles, um, getting them to advise them how to set up a whorehouse and how to evade taxes and how to do a bunch of other things. You know, and uh, when he exposed this, um, it led to some serious consequences for Acorn, including they're going bankrupt. Uh, you know, the uh, the federal government, because of these revelations, was forced to cancel contracts that they had with Acorn. Acorn being a very radical left wing group that had its tentacles in almost every state in the union, and including some foreign countries, and which was advocating. Uh, you know, kind of a uh, a syndicalist approach to government. They wanted to have uh, unelected bureaus uh, distributing wealth to people and, you know, a, a very collectivist and very left-wing and involved in, uh, you know, having a major role in the meltdown, in, uh, in uh, the mortgage meltdown in the 1990s and 2000s by their pressures. Uh, major involvement in voter fraud is, uh, you know, they, they've been accused of this in every election going back to the 1980s. And anyways, uh, O'Keefe caught them red-handed and filmed it, and it forced the Obama administration to cancel a contract that they had through the Department of Commerce, which which was supposed to employ Acorn, or Acorn, believe it or not, to conduct the census. Holy mackerel! I mean, you want to talk about a fraudulent situation? Uh, also, st- many states, including New York State, canceled contracts with ACORN. Many communities around the country, including New York City, 
canceled contracts with Acorn. The result was that Acorn became, went bankrupt. Um, they they kind of changed their name. I think they still exist under some guise. But uh, I think that the left was expecting Acorn to continue voter fraud for them uh, in this coming election, just like they did, I believe, in 2008, when um, not so much voter fraud, but you know the the voter registration um, false false registrations to the tune of about 400,000 delivered to uh, clerks all around the country. It's very difficult to catch, and those are the only the ones that were caught. Um, with Acorn on the on his now knocked to its heels, there would be no one to engage in this kind of fraud. So in marches George Soros, who sets up this front group. And by the way, states in 2010, including Democratic states, one of which was um, Michigan, which uh, which had a very liberal Democratic governor by the name of Jennifer Grenhorn, were, were passing laws in response to the voter fraud of 2008 that would make it more difficult for voter fraud to take place, thus respecting the the sanctity of one man, one vote, or one woman, one vote, uh, so that everyone, every person who is a citizen of the United States who, who would be able to have a process by which their vote was counted and not corrupted or compromised by a fraudulent vote. So they worked to set up this system to protect the voting functions in the states. And in marches this uh, George Soros, who writes a $7.3 million check to start this turf group called the uh, Brennan Center, the, uh, named after uh, former Supreme Court Justice, the late Bill Brennan, Bill Brennan, very ultra-liberal justice, who was on record as having said that he viewed a Supreme Court decision as a reconvening of the, of the uh, Constitutional Convention, literally where the, these men in, in robes and women would be able to create laws. Um, this group then launched a, um, a campaign of claiming that the establishment of voting laws to ensure that the votes were honest were somehow racist, that they had this was being done because these states had something against African-American men and women. They wanted to stop them from voting because they don't like black people or because they don't like, they're afraid the black people are going to vote liberals so they don't want them to do it. Completely and utterly false, utterly racist, and completely unfounded. The truth is that um, the left is concerned that they may not be able to steal this election. They don't have ACORN. They've got states standing up and putting in laws that would protect the vote from fraud. We've got, for example, recently to prove that there is fraud, um, James O'Keefe once again sallying forth and, and doing some brilliant work, undercover work, what the media is supposed to do, in which he filmed a, a series of exchanges with a, um, a Democratic liberal um, activist and uh, campaign manager, happens to be um, the son of uh, Congressman Moran, Patrick Moran. Moran is a very radical left-wing congressman in uh, Washington. He's the one that said that the Jews were behind the uh, Iraqi attack. Nancy Pelosi had him censored for that. 
Anyway, the son, uh, Patrick uh, O'Keefe, met with him in a campaign office, and he got him to explain how to commit voter fraud. I mean, uh, O'Keefe posing as somebody who wanted it. He, he said, I have 100 names of people who were registered to vote, and I want to know how to get them, you know, how to cast absentee ballots in their name. Well, Patrick uh, Moran was more than happy to assist him. And you can see this video. It's, it's, it's viral. It's on YouTube. And this Patrick Moran is a real scummy-looking character anyways. I hate to think that he's a typical example of left-wing people these days, but unfortunately he is. And um, the film is amazing. I watched the entire thing and the exchange and, and, and how brilliantly um, O'Keefe handled this. And he got him to say all these things in terms of how to uh, to fill out, you know, how to get false ID in order to get these things and not be detected and, and very sophisticated. I mean, he obviously had, this being Moran, had obviously thought this through. I mean, this wasn't something he was just inventing, which seems to indicate that he's not the only one. And now, apparently, there are being charges being brought against Moran by a local uh, law enforcement because uh, he's been caught. He's been forced to resign, obviously, from his father's campaign. I bring this up only because it gets to the the crux of the matter here, which is that there's major fraud taking place, you know. And this is uh, from Red State. This, again, is uh, Eric Erickson. A friendly reminder about voter ID. The left would have you believe that voter ID is discriminatory, racist, oppressive. Why? Because according to the left, many minorities and low-income individuals simply lack the time or ability to obtain the ID. They would need to vote. They can't find transportation to the DMV. The government ID offices are only open during working hours, which hourly wage workers are occupied with their own jobs. In short, for many individuals, getting an ID is just impossible. So here's your friendly reminder about proof of identification laws in the United States in order to work legally in this country. You have to prove your identity by using documents like a passport, driver's license, social security, or birth certificate. The I-9 form, which employers are required by the federal government to collect in order to verify an individual's eligibility to work in the United States requires the production of the very same ID that the left says is impossible to obtain. All U.S. employers must complete and retain the Form 1-9 for each individual they hire for employment in the United States. The U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service Agencies writes on its website, the employer must examine the employment eligibility and identity documents of an employee presents to determine whether the documents reasonably appear to be genuine and relate to the individual and record the document information on the Form 1-9. If that, that's right, if you want to work legally in the United States, the federal government will not accept a water bill as proof of your identity or residence. It will not accept a bank statement Heck, it won't even accept your driver's license as the sole means of identification. If you only have your driver's license, then you must also produce a Social Security card or a birth certificate. This begs the question of how the hypocritical, low, hypothetical low-income individual or the liberal's example was ever actually hired for a job 
that they now can't possibly get away from in order to obtain a valid ID. So the next time a liberal tells you that requiring ID is racist, or that requiring it is oppressive, or that a woman in this story in the New York Times couldn't possibly find the time to obtain a valid ID, just ask them the following. If it's oppressive to require proof of identity to vote, then why is it not oppressive to prove your identity to get a job? Update. I just got off the phone with an operator at the University of Chicago Medical Center where Michelle Obama worked as a vice president prior to her husband's election in 2008. I asked the operator if the hospital requires proof of identity prior to receiving treatment. He said the hospital did require proof of identification, such as a driver's license, birth certificate, or social security card, none of which is required to vote in many states. But what about emergency ER treatment? Would I have to provide ID to receive emergency care? Yes, he replied. New question. If health care is a right, but requiring an individual to provide ID prior to voting is racist or oppressive, then how is requiring an ID prior to receiving health care not oppressive? Inquiring minds want to know. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll be back in hour number two. Please stay tuned. You're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks. You're welcome to join the conversation. Two, uh, what am I saying? Uh, 347-327-9849. 347-327-9849. Please stay tuned.
o'clock, hour number two of Chuck Moore Speaks, Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You're welcome to join the conversation, 347-327-9849. That number again is 347-327-9849. In hour number one, I had Herman Caslow join me. He's the producer of Atlas Shrugged Part 2, available in over 150 movie houses around the country. You should see this movie. It really explains in many ways what's happening in this country. Um, from the perspective of Ayn Rand's famous novel, Atlas Shrugged. And uh, I think that uh, Herman made the case very, or Harmon made the case very succinctly that America is shrugging. Atlas is shrugging. And um, we have a, an attitude in this country that uh, fostered by Obama and his people that has led to a denigration of uh, success, of wealth of the development of uh, capital, of the development of independence as people, in that the entire focus of his campaign, rather than talk about his failed record in both economic and uh, international terms, which, of course, hard, the hard left agrees with, uh, that being the failures, because they want the United States to be merged into a kind of a dumbed-down world order. But rather than talk about that, um Obama and his people made the conscious effort am I going to go where? I don't know. Made the conscious effort to um to attack Romney for being successful. Um and that was a very cynical thing to do. I don't think it's worked. And I think what it is essentially is an attack on every single one of us. It is an attack on freedom. It is an attack on the right of individuals to keep that which they've earned it's an attack on our economic way of life which is which is capitalism based on a little thing called self-interest and i don't think they're going to get away with it i think they're going to lose i hope and pray that they're going to lose because what happens in this next uh, tuesday a week from tuesday which is less than two weeks away we're talking days here will affect the future of this country. It will affect the ability of every single American man, woman, and child to function, and every man and woman of working age to get a job and to be able to prosper in, in a free market system. It comes down to that. It really does. You know, if Obama is reelected, he's going to be a lame duck for four years. And given his propensity to rule by fiat and executive order, He's going to put in place a lot of things that have been rumbling under the surface for years now, and these things are not conducive to the freedom of people. They're not conducive to what made this country what it is, what makes this country work, which is freedom, private ownership, capitalism, and the right of individuals to determine their own lives and their own destiny. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. Self-interest is good. Greed is good. No, I'm kidding. Greed is not good. In fact, I think Mitt Romney and his people are getting away from greed. They're getting into earned wealth, how to achieve. Anyway, I'm looking at the, the uh, Rasmussen poll, and I am optimistic by what I'm seeing. They, they have come out today with a poll in Wisconsin. Wisconsin is now tied Obama 49, Romney 49. 
Now, Wisconsin is a liberal state. Uh, it's a state that went big time for Obama in 08. And here we are less than two weeks before the election, and it is a dead heat. It is tied with a 2% undecided, according to Rasmussen. And I'd like to reiterate, and this is a point that was made very well by um, Dick Morris, who did some research into the history of this, and that is that on Election Day, unquestionably, whether it be the Democrat or the Republican, the undecided vote tends to break for the challenger. People who are showing up at the polling place, you know, they don't know who they're going to vote for, they tend to want to give the challenger a shot. Hey, let's give that guy a shot. You know, we've had enough of the four years of the person in there. And so you can expect Mitt Romney to get at least, at least 50% of the undecided vote on Election Day, conservatively 60 to 65%, possibly 75 to 80 or even 90% of the undecided vote on Election Day. So if Wisconsin is tied... And again, that is a blue state. Um, then, and there's still two percent undecided. That looks very, very good for Mitt Romney. Pennsylvania, the Senate race in Pennsylvania. You've got Casey, the Democrat. He's the son of Bob Casey, the former senator. He's at forty-six percent. His challenger, Smith, the Republican, is at forty-five percent. That is a major pulling up by the Republican. They're now within one. He's now within one percent of of Casey, according to Rasmussen, and that's with a large percentage of people undecided, almost ten percent undecided, which makes that race very competitive. We could see a Republican upset in the Senate in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. For the national ticket, Obama is at 51, Romney is at 46. Okay, it looks like Obama pretty much has, according to this poll, has Pennsylvania. You know, that's that's outside the margin of error with Obama over 51%, so over 50%. So I think that if, if, if the election took place today, then we could say that uh, Pennsylvania is going to go for Obama. <clears throat> that's that's not good news. and It's a... Uh, it's not good news, but I will say this. Uh, Romney has become at least competitive. Uh, that's, he's five points behind, whereas if this poll were done uh, in September, he would have been more like 10 to 15 points behind. So if there's any momentum in that race, it's with Romney. Um, daily presidential tracking poll has Romney at 50. Obama at 47. Fantastic. This, the last week or so, has seen Mitt Romney break the 50 percentage points, and that's uh, unprecedented. Obama has hasn't even done it. I think Obama did it for a couple of days after um, the uh, the Democratic convention. He got a little convention bump, but for the most part, Obama has been below 50. And here we are, less than two weeks away from the election. And Obama is at 47. Mitt Romney is at 50 in the presidential tracking poll. Okay, we're talking polls. We're talking the election. We have open lines. 
You're welcome to join the conversation. Please come on down, 347-327-9849. What is on your mind this afternoon, huh? 347-327-9849. Please stay tuned. back. Well, I'd like to welcome this. You're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks on uh, Cyber Station USA Radio Network and Blog Talk Radio. I'd like to welcome aboard our affiliate stations, WWPRAM in Tampa Bay, Florida, and KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon. Of course, we're up on Stitches, which is our online app. You can listen to this program anywhere in the world by going to the Cyber Station website and downloading Stitches for free. Listen to it on your cell phone. We're also at iTunes and at U and at YouTunes, uh, I think it is. Uh, this is the equivalent uh, in the PC world. So the program is out there; it's it's proliferating. And uh, while I have your attention, I should mention that my book, my book, my book, my book is now available um, as a PDF only at one place, and that is on my blog site, which is Chuck Moore Speaks. The book is The Monkey Trial, Evolutionary Politics in the Post-Traditional Age. It's only $3.75, $3.75. Already it's starting to sell, and already there's some interest. I think that um, the press release is going out, and I believe that probably after the election and the smoke clears a bit, there will probably be some interviews uh, by me on different radio stations around the country. And I'm looking forward to that. You know, there's no, I, I love talking about this issue. It's such a fundamental issue, that being the issues covered in this book. You can't get more basic than a discussion of evolution, which is a, a theory of where we came from, how we got here, to use the words of the late, of not the late, to use the words of Admiral James Stockdale, who was uh, Ross Perot's running mate in 1993, 1992 and who, during his vice presidential debate appearance, started his comments by saying, who am I and where did I come from? And that's something that has gone down in history. So that's what my book answers, and that's why it is such a hot subject. I can't tell you the exchanges that I've had with people who are furious at me, both from the left and the right, and people who are praiseworthy, that I would dare, dare question the legitimacy and the science of the theory of evolution. What am I, some kind of a right-wing Christian fundamentalist? You know, that kind of stuff. Well, this book has nothing to do with any particular denomination of Christianity. I happen to not be Christian myself. I respect those denominations, and I respect the Bible. I respect creationism. But that's not what my book is about. My book is about the science of the theory of evolution but more importantly and more fundamentally, it's not a science book. I'm not a scientist. It is about the politics and the philosophy of the evolutionary idea and how that has influenced society since it was promulgated, why it was that this became an idea that was supported in the 19th century by the international liberal elites 
why it is that that idea, the evolutionary idea, the idea that we're all evolving biologically through superior breeding, led to such movements as uh, social Darwinism, eugenics, Nazism, and communism, and how that idea continues to influence our thinking today. Uh, this is an interesting opportunity to learn uh, about a political and philosophical question that actually is the underpinnings of all other or most other uh, questions. So I think that this is the kind of book and the kind of discussion that is going to do very well after the election, because right now we have to we have to deal with the election. Uh, what else could be more important than that? That's the main focus and should be. But after the election and after, God willing, Mitt Romney is president-elect Mitt Romney, then we will be able to turn our attention to some more fundamental issues, and I shall be there for that, ready to go with this book. Again, if you're interested, it's available online only at my blog site, Chuck Morse Speaks. Just put your, my name into the server, Chuck Morse. M-O-R-S-E, or Chuck Moore Speaks, and you shall see the book right there, The Monkey Trial, Evolutionary Politics in the Post-Traditional Age. And you can order it right there by clicking on the Buy Now button, and it costs only $3.75, half the cost of a six-pack of beer. And once you order that book, I will then be able to uh, send you the book by, by email. It's a PDF, and it's an online book. It's not a hard copy book. It will be as soon as the publisher publishes it, but uh, that could take a long time. I mean, this business is a slow business. It could take a year. It could take two years. So I got tired of waiting, and I, I got permission to make the book available as a PDF, and so there you have it. It's in advance of the publication. That's why it's so cheap. So check it out. The Monkey Trial, Evolutionary Politics in the Post-Traditional Age, available at Chuck Morse Speaks. Back to the Rasmussen poll. It has the presidential tracking poll, Romney 50, <clears throat> Obama 47. That's the third day in a row. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm nervous. I'm not confident. I won't be confident until the Wednesday after the Tuesday. But um, I hope and believe and pray that there's momentum in Romney's favor, not in Obama's favor. Um, I think that if Romney can just hold on, uh, then he'll win. But I think that there has to be movement, and I believe the movement is in Romney's favor. There's nothing really else that, that can happen I don't think that that could change things between now and, and a week from Tuesday. It's too late. I think Obama tried a couple of October surprises, and they went over like lead balloons. The Benghazi situation was not good for Obama. He didn't expect that, but that's what happened, and it didn't help him. You know, he should have handled it differently, but he didn't. Now all he can do is hope that uh, people don't think about that or that it's not resurrected, although I believe it's the front page of the Drudge Report today, um, and that is the, what, what's new with Benghazi. Oh, I don't even want to talk about it. Um, CIA op denied help during Benghazi. Oh, how awful. Father of slain seal, 
who made the decision not to save my son. Pentagon knew too little to deploy troops. Panetta, critics Monday morning quarterbacking. Look, the whole thing is a mess for Obama. It's not going to help him. I don't think that there's uh, I don't think there's going to be anything more coming out about it. It's bad enough. All they can do is hope that uh, the thing just sort of percolates. It's sort of like Watergate. The Watergate break-in in 1972 happened before the election, and it was just ignored and, and downplayed until after the election when it blew up. I think they're hoping the same thing with Benghazi. Moving along here, swing state tracking poll, and this again is the Rasmussen poll, which is very known to be very accurate. That, also, that has Mitt Romney at 50, Obama at 46, not 47, 46. Now, those are the swing states. That means that uh, Romney has a seven-point, a six, seven, yeah, six-point, six-point lead. Let me do my math here. In the swing state vote, Virginia, Romney 50, Obama 48. Very, very close. Virginia has become very liberal. It's a suburb of Washington, D.C. And so the question is whether or not the old line Virginians can and the military in Virginia, particularly the Navy, which is a big presence there, can counteract the, uh, the Washington suburbs, which is also a growing part of Virginia. Arizona, Romney 52, Obama 44. So there's a solid Romney state. Now, I'd like to see the numbers in. I think that it's safe to say that Romney has a pretty healthy lead in Florida. And with a slim lead in Virginia and a, and a better lead in North Carolina, you can say that Mitt Romney has the South all wrapped up. I don't think there's a single southern state that is leaning toward Obama at all. And these are many of these are traditional Democratic states. Let's not forget Bill Clinton is a Southerner. He came from Arkansas. Jimmy Carter is from Georgia. Al Gore is from Tennessee. I mean, these are not these are states that have voted for for Democrats, and they did vote for Barack Obama. So, I think that it's safe to say that uh, that Mitt Romney has the South almost virtually stowed up, and and by the South I mean the border states too, like uh, Missouri and and. Uh, and Kentucky. Um, I think the only border state he doesn't have is, is uh, Maryland and Delaware. In the Northeast, Obama, last I checked, Romney was ahead in New Hampshire. So he could actually take one of the New England states and maybe even make inroads in some of the others. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Oh, my God. Can you imagine if Mitt Romney, former governor of Massachusetts, did well in Massachusetts? I don't think he's going to take Massachusetts. But just doing well here would be fantastic. Apparently, he's not going to take, according to Rasmussen, he's not going to take Pennsylvania. That's too bad. In the Midwest, he's tied in Michigan, that being Mitt Romney. He is tied or maybe one point behind in Ohio, which, of course, is the ultimate key swing state. He's ahead substantially in 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 Indiana, and he's behind in Illinois, which is Barack Obama's home state. But as of today, he is tied, or you know, well, yeah, actually tied in Wisconsin, 49-49. And I think he might be one point behind in Minnesota, and one point behind in Iowa. So he is making advances to the degree that there's been any advance. 
it is in favor of Mitt Romney. What say you callers? Come on down. 347-327-9849. What are the issues that are bothering you in this election? What are the issues you'd like discussed in this election? How do you see things impacting in terms of which candidate is elected as President of the United States? 347-327-9849. Another column I have up today on the blog site is, of course, one about Elizabeth Warren, the loathsome Elizabeth Warren, who uh, I understand is a drop ahead. Oh, please, God, anybody but her. I'll read it. What the heck? Elizabeth Warren, a despicable person. Only in Massachusetts could a low-life bottom feeder like Elizabeth Warren ever be considered for high office. Putting aside her hardcore followers, her true-believing cadres who would follow her off a cliff, I can understand why many mainstream Massachusetts Democrats are supporting her. They support her because they want revenge against Scott Brown for taking the Kennedy seat during the special election two years ago. To accomplish this, they have decided to hold their noses and shut their eyes and ears. Where should I start? It's difficult to know when so much about Elizabeth Warren is based upon lies. Let's see. The mediocre Harvard professor and bankruptcy lawyer, who has never run for public office before, began compiling her fortune while still living in Oklahoma City. She made a ton flipping distressed foreclosed properties by working with local multinational corporate clients, by working with banks, excuse me. Yet isn't Elizabeth supposed to stand for banking reform? She then takes on big multinational corporate clients while at Harvard Law. She lists Harvard as her business address while employed as a lawyer by these big corporations, these companies made up of millionaires and billionaires, even though she was not an active member of the bar in Massachusetts. And all this while she drones on about the top 1% and claims to be the inspiration behind Occupy Wall Street. And who were those clients who were paying her those six figures? Let's see. There was Travelers Insurance, which hired her to help them set up a means by which to get immunity from making good on insurance policies that were held by victims of asbestos poisoning. People who paid into their insurance plans while working for uh, the manufacturer Johns Mansville. Elizabeth got a quarter of a million bucks helping travelers set up a separate fund which would have, at best, paid out peanuts to the victims, but which travelers never funded because they didn't have to after Elizabeth's handiwork. Perhaps Elizabeth thought the clock would run out and those people poisoned by asbestos would die before they could have offered testimony against her. And in this regard, she was largely right. The victims of this scam are crying out from the grave for truth and justice. They came, then came the coal mining company. Yes, liberals, that's right. You heard it right. A big, fat corporation making big bucks stripping tops off of mountains while screwing their union. Elizabeth was brought in and paid handsomely to help them screw their union out of their pensions and other benefits over the objection of liberals in Congress including the late Senator Ted Kennedy. Elizabeth hopes that if she keeps shrieking loud enough about her championing the cause of working people, nobody will notice. 
Union brothers and sisters, hello, anyone home? Then finally comes the coup de grace, at least in terms of what is known, and no doubt there is more that is not known. Elizabeth marches in and grabs a big check to help Dow Chemical Company. A chemical company, for Christ's sakes. Normally, enemy number one of the left and the environmentalists. Elizabeth helps them defend themselves against lawsuits being brought by women. These women were suffering from toxic disease due to exposure from their Dow Chemical breast implant. They sought a small measure of justice. Justice! Until good old Elizabeth Warren, friend of the corrupt fat cats, when they, li- when they line her corrupt and greedy pocket, strides forth and squelches these women. Oh, yes, I'm sorry, that's right. Elizabeth is a champion of women, don't you know? We don't even need to go into how she cheated on affirmative action in order to get her tenured position at Harvard. This is something I thought liberals cared about. Release the personnel files, Liz. The mediocre teacher teaches one class at Harvard, gets 375k per year, and a free house. Not a bad gig, I would say. No wonder the rest of us are going broke trying to pay for college. But I almost forgot to mention, Elizabeth knows how to work the rigged system. She knows that if she spits out enough left-wing slogans, she will get a pass. And indeed, she has gotten a pass, because if this were anyone else, they would have been long gone by now. Fellow Massachusetts voters, please don't disgrace our state and disgrace yourselves. Please don't vote for the lying cheating fraud anyway so there you have it I don't know if I could be more explicit than that I think we're going to take a brief break you're welcome to join the conversation of course 347-327-9849 Chuck Morse Chuck Morse speaks Monday through Friday noon to 2pm 347-327-9849 Chuck Moore speaks Monday through Friday noon to 2 p.m. What is on your mind this afternoon, huh? We're talking Rasmussen. We're talking elections. Dick Morris um, has an interesting piece up. By the way, I really urge people to get Dick Morris's uh, report. He says, Mitt Romney's indictment of Obama record. Now, just over a week before D-Day, our national election, the key swing states are showing Obama is in deep trouble. There are real indications that Obama's camp is simply abandoning significant ad buys in Florida, Virginia, and North Carolina. 
Remember those states they said were in the bag for Obama? Now they are pulling up their stakes and moving dwindling campaign funds. And by the way, Obama, I think, had to take a $10 million loan because he doesn't have any money. People have stopped sending money. They're moving dwindling campaign funds into a handful of swing states, states Romney is gaining in. I predicted weeks ago that this would happen. Obama simply can't win a national election, and he can't win all the key swing states his campaign targeted. Frankly, we have Barack Obama on the run. Typically, Democrats hold a big advantage over the Republicans among women. The pundits call this the gender gap. But the AP poll released Thursday had a political shocker. Mitt Romney is tied with Obama among women voters at 47%. I have a note here. Obama has $97 million in cash on hand. Romney has $67 million. I don't know where that came from. I'd like to see the source on that. What I did see is that uh, Romney, Obama had to borrow $5 million. Uh, from the Bank of America last week in order to keep going. Uh, and also that uh, I don't know how old those figures are. I think that um, apparently Romney is having unprecedented money pouring in from all around the country uh, in the past couple of days. So, I mean, I kind of wonder where that figure comes from, how, update, how, how up-to-date that is. Um, anyways, I'm not saying it's untrue. I just would like to see, you know, the the, the date of that figure. It might be back to September. I don't know. So, the AP released a poll Thursday, which indicates that Mitt Romney is now tied with Obama among women voters, 47%. That is amazing, and that tells you that uh, there's still six percent of women that are undecided. And what's going to happen then is that Obama is going to try to capture that woman vote by jacking up these lies about uh, Republicans supporting rape, you know, this kind of crap. Or they're going to put out this commercial showing a young woman talking about, uh, with double entendres, talking about voting for Obama like it's the first time she had sex, you know, to try to appeal to young women. How insulting and cynical is that? Anyway, this is stunning news. Obama can't win re-election without holding a majority of women. He is in deep trouble, and the Obama camp knows it. And one reason why they are turning the corner is that Super PAC for America is holding Obama's feet to the fire. This is the Super PAC headed by its national chair, Michael Reagan, former President Reagan's son. Now, here comes the fundraising pitch. <laughs> Mike has brought together some of the great minds of the GOP, including people who helped his dad win two landslide elections, to make sure that Mitt Romney wins on Election Day and that Barack Obama is put into early, early retirement. By the way, another person working behind the scenes that I think is going to be very effective <clears throat> is none other than Ralph Reed, the former head of the Christian Coalition, who, after his disgrace uh, in terms of his affiliation with uh, with Jack Abramoff and his dropping out of sight, apparently he's come back and he is working his super list. He has lists of millions of people who are supporters of uh, his Christian causes. 
and he is working behind the scenes to get those people out to vote. And those are people who can make a big difference in the swing states like Ohio. You know, and it's kind of a quiet thing. I mean, they can't we we won't see that happen until election day. That could really make a big difference. Our first Super PAC ad, that being Michael Reagan and um and uh Dick Morris who's in on this is a powerful expose of Obama's dismal job record. It is powerful in simplicity. A black screen that lists Obama's dismal economic numbers, followed by chants of four more years, four more years. A voice comes on at the end of the screen and says, you've got to be kidding. When I watched Mitt Romney at the second debate, I saw him use the same focus. I was so impressed with Mitt's comments about Obama, I created a powerful new ad for Super PAC using Mitt's own words. In fact, Mitt's remarks may prove to be the turning point in the campaign. They are the equivalent of Ronald Reagan's 1980 debate line that crushed Jimmy Carter. Are you better off than you were four years ago? You can see the new Super PAC ad. Here is a click to it. Right now we have our first Super PAC ad in five key swing states, Ohio, Virginia, Colorado, Florida, and Iowa. We'd like to continue this effort and grow the campaign into other potential swing states, such as Nevada and New Hampshire, but we need funds. So check this out. You know, you can go and contribute to continuing to run this ad, dickmorris.com. I believe that the final holdouts, the swing voters, who have yet to decide, where was I? Um, he hasn't even, he said he would, all right, here we go. Uh, this must be the text of the ad. Here's what Mitt Romney said. Okay, I apologize for that. I can tell you that if you were to elect President Obama, you know what you're going to get. You're going to get a repeat of the last four years. He said that by now we'd have unemployment at 5.4%. The difference between where it is and 5.4% is 9 million Americans without work. I wasn't one, the one that said 5.4%. This was the president's plan. Didn't get there. He said he would have by now put forward a plan to reform Medicare and Social Security because he pointed out they're on the road to bankruptcy. He would reform them. He didn't get that done. He hasn't even made a proposal on either one. He said in his first year he'd put out an immigration plan that would deal with our immigration challenges. Didn't even file it. This is a president who has not been able to do what he said he'd do. He said that he'd cut in half the deficit. He hasn't done that either. In fact, he's doubled it. He said that by now middle-class income families would have a reduction in their health insurance premiums by $2,500 a year. It's gone up by $2,500 a year. And if Obamacare is passed or implemented, it's already been passed. If it's implemented fully, it'll be another $2,500 on top. The middle class is getting crushed under the policies of a president who has not understood what it takes to get the economy working again. He keeps saying, look, I've created 5 million jobs. That's after losing 5 million jobs. 
The entire record is such that unemployment has not been reduced in this country. The unemployment, the numbers of people who are still looking for work, is still 23 million Americans. There are more people in poverty, one out of six people in poverty. How about food stamps? When he took office, 32 million people were on food stamps. Today, 47 million people are on food stamps. How about the growth in the economy? It's growing more slowly this year than last year, and more slowly last year than the year before. The president wants to do well, I understand. But the policy he's put in place, from Obamacare to Dodd-Frank to his tax policies to his regulatory policies, these policies combined have not led this economy take off and grow like it could have. I believe if Americans hear uh, this is um, this is um, okay. This is uh, uh, what's his face, uh, Morris talking. I believe if Americans hear this and think about it, they will vote with us, and Mitt Romney will become our next president. Okay, I agree with that. So he wants you to support his pack. So that's uh, that's from uh, Dick Morris. Very interesting, very important stuff. Um. So there you have it. I mean, look, we, we're, you know, here the Gallup polls out today, 51 for Mitt, 46 for Obama. That's the Gallup poll. That's a, a, a huge national poll. That's not some right-wing group. And by the way, Rasmussen, while he leans to the right, he was, he was, he's been rated as one of the best pollsters in the country, and he got the, uh, the vote exactly right in 2008 when he predicted that Barack Obama would be elected. So he's a pretty straight shooter when it comes to polling. But Gallup is a longtime respected poll, and they have Mitt Romney today at 51%. So Romney is surging. Romney is picking up. If there's any movement, it's for Romney. I mean, that's quite clear. I don't see where Barack Obama, unless there's – I mean – He's now going to the bottom of the barrel and trying to tell women, he's scaring women by saying, oh, the they Republicans, they support rape. I mean, talk about a crappy, low-life tactic. I mean, it shows absolute desperation. I'm sorry. So here we have more news coming out. Um, oh, boy, Al Gore's current TV is putting itself up for sale. <laughs> That doesn't surprise me. Who the heck wants to watch that? Here, this is Peggy Noonan. She's a well-respected columnist. This is a good one. And this is the Wall Street Journal. When Americans saw the real Obama, we all say Ohio, 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 but it's all still Denver, Denver, and the mystery that maybe isn't a mystery at all. If Cincinnati and Lake County go for Mitt Romney on November 6th, It'll be because of what happened in Denver on October 3rd. If Barack Obama barely scrapes through, if there's a bloody and prolonged recount, it too will be because of Denver. Nothing echoes out like the debate. It was the moment that allowed Mr. Romney to break through, that allowed, Rom- that allowed dismay with the incumbent to coalesce that allowed voters to consider the alternative. What the debate did 
to the president is what the Yankees in 04, 04 series against the Tigers did, at least momentarily, to the team's relationship with their city. Dear Yankees, we don't date losers, sign New Yorkers, read the Post headline. America doesn't date losers either. Why was the first debate so toxic for the president? Because the one thing he couldn't do if he was going to win the election is let all the pent-up resentment toward him erupt. Americans had gotten used to him as the president. Whatever his policy choices, whatever general direction he seemed to put in place, he was the president, a man who had gotten there through natural gifts and what all politicians need, good fortune. What he couldn't do was present himself while, when everyone was looking as smaller than you thought, petulant, put upon, above it all, full of himself. He couldn't afford to make himself look less impressive than the challenger in terms of command, grasp of facts, size. But that's what he did. And in some utterly new way, the president was revealed, exposed. All the people whose job it is to surround and explain him, to act as his buffers and protectors, they weren't there. It was him on the stage, alone with the competitor. He didn't have a teleprompter, and so his failure seemed to underscore the cliché that the prompter is a kind of umbilical cord for him something that provides nourishment, the thing he needs to sound good. He is not by any means a stupid man, but he has become a boring one. He drones, he is predictable, it's never new. The teleprompter adds substance, or at least safety. A great and assumed question, the one that's still floating out there, is what exactly happened when Mr. Obama did himself in, what led to it? Was it the catastrophic ex execution of an arguably sound strategy? Perhaps the idea was to show the president was so unimpressed by his challenger that he could coolly keep him at bay by not engaging. Maybe Mr. Obama's handlers advised, the American people aren't impressed by this flip-flopping outsourcing plutocrat and you will deepen your bond with the American people, Mr. President, by expressing in your bearing, through your manner and language, how unimpressed you are, too. So he sat back and let Mr. Romney come forward. But Mr. Romney was poised, knowledgeable, presidential. It was a mistake to let that come forward. Was it the catastrophic execution of a truly bad strategy? Maybe they assumed that the election was already pretty much in the bag. Don't sweat it. Just be your glitteringly brilliant self and let Duncan the Wonder Horse go out there and turn people off. But nothing was in the bag. The sheer number of people who watched a historic 70 million suggests that a lot of voters were still making up their minds. Maybe the president himself didn't think he could possibly be beaten because he's so beloved. Presidents are always given good news to keep their spirits up. The poll numbers he'd been seeing, 
the Get Out the Vote report, the extraordinary Internet effort to connect with every lonely person in America, which is a lot of persons. Maybe everything he was hearing let him thinking, led, left him thinking his position was impregnable. But maybe these questions are all off. Maybe what happened isn't a mystery at all. That, anyway, is the view expressed this week by a member of the U.S. Senate who served there with Mr. Obama, and who was met with him in the White House. People back home, he said, sometimes wonder what happened with the president in the debate. The senator said, I paraphrase, I sort of have to tell them that it wasn't a miscalculation or a weird moment. I tell them, I know him, and that was him. That guy on the stage, that's the real Obama. Which gets us to Bob Woodward's The Price of Politics, published last month. The portrait it contains of Mr. Obama, of a president who is at once over his head, out of his depth, and wholly unaware of the fact hasn't received the attention it deserves. Throughout the book, which is a journalistic history of the president's key economic negotiations with Capitol Hill, Mr. Obama is portrayed as having the appearance and presentation of an academic or intellectual while being strangely clueless in his reading of political situations and dynamics. He is bad at negotiating, in fact, doesn't know how, his confidence is consistently greater than his acumen, his arrogance greater than his grasp. He misread Republican opponents from day one. If he had been large-spirited and conciliatory, he would have effectively undercut them and kept them from uniting. If he'd been large-spirited with Mr. Romney, he would have undercut him too. Instead, he was toughly partisan, he shut them out, and positions hardened in time. Republicans came to think he doesn't really listen, doesn't really hear. So did some Democrats. Business leaders and mighty CEOs felt patronized. After inviting them to meet with him, the president read from a teleprompter and included the press. They felt like window dressing. One spoke of Obama's surface polish and essential remoteness. In negotiation, he did not cajole, seduce, muscle, or win sympathy. He instructed. He claimed deep understanding of his adversaries and their motives, but was often incorrect. He told staffers that John Boehner, one of 11 children of a small-town bar owner, was a country club Republican. He was often patronizing, which in the old and accomplished is irritating, but in the young and inexperienced is infuriating. Boehner said he hated going down to the White House to listen to what amounted to presidential lectures, Mr. Woodward writes. Mr. Obama was a White House, Mr. Obama's was a White House that had and showed no respect for trying to negotiate with other Republicans. Through it all, he was confident Eric, don't call my bluff, because he believed, as did his staff, that his talents would save the day. They saved nothing. Washington became immobilized. 
Mr. Woodward's portrait of the president is not precisely new. It has been down in other it has been drawn in other ways, in other accounts, and has been a staple of DC gossip for three years now. But it is vivid and believable, and there is probably a direct line between that portrait and the Obama scene in the first debate. Maybe that's what made it so indelible and made it such an arc changer. People saw for the first time an Obama they may have heard about on radio or in a newspaper, but had never seen. They didn't see some odd version of the president. They saw the president, and they didn't like what they saw, and that would linger. Okay, that's a Peggy Noonan. What a great columnist she is anyways. I've always liked her. Oh, I loved, by the way, I, I the day after that first debate, I had um, I had uh, Dave Johnson on the show, <laughs> and he said, "Well, I don't know. I think the I think the strategy was to do poorly so that they could lower expectations, and he'd come back and do better the second time." Oh, brother! I don't know, <laughs> but even he he kind of said it with a laugh. I mean, come on, we saw the real 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 uh, Obama that day, and it was not pretty. It's just that simple. And I think that uh, the uh, verdict will be coming in. It's going to be coming in any day now. It's getting very much down the wire. Let's see what else is going on. We talked about the Gallup poll, 51 um, Romney, 46 Obama. Florida Sun Sentinel, big paper. They flipped from 2008 when they endorsed Obama. Now they're endorsing Romney. Oh, my God. Biden has accused Romney of a $500 trillion tax cut. <laughs> Gee, Biden is completely going off his lid. The other day he's in uh, Ohio where he thanks people from Iowa. Oh, man. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that used to be a big deal. <laughs> now he's just completely talking gibberish. There's a new book coming out about Biden, by the way, by his former chief of staff, kind of a tell-all. He talks about what a miserable, arrogant SOB Biden is. Not that anybody didn't kind of sense that. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, the U.N. is sending election observers into Texas. The U.N. That's, you know, this, this international body is going to observe. I wonder if they're biased, you know. I wonder who what, – what do they think, that the Tea Party people are going to try to steal votes at the polls? I don't know what evidence they have on that. Yeah, I wonder if they're going to look at the new Black Panthers, who actually did try to intimidate voters. Well, the governor of uh, Texas, that being uh, Perry, and the attorney general has said that they're going to arrest them if they show up at the polls. And if their foot so much as crosses a threshold, that would put them into the too close to the polling place. Good, they should they should be arrested. This is ridiculous. We don't need to have foreign powers coming in and watching our elections. The fact that anyone has asked for that is a disgrace. And that these people are Obama backers, that should tell you something. Obama should have to stand and answer to that. That is absolutely a scandal. Meanwhile, just as a matter of public record, we should mention that those of us who live up here in Boston and on the East Coast are girding for a huge storm. 
Hurricane Sandy, they say it could be the biggest storm um, in 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 a hundred years. I mean, I don't know. What if, I hate to think think about these things, but you know, I mean, I, I and I'll admit that I'm a little obsessed. But with just two less than two weeks before the election, I wonder if this is going to how this is going to affect Obama's votes in places like um, New York and New Jersey. <laughs> I mean, uh, I don't know why. I don't know if it'll affect it negatively. <clears throat> what if it lands in Boston? I mean, I don't know. All those old blue-haired ladies who vote for Kennedy, they, they won't be able to get out. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, I hate to say that, but, uh, you know, at an election like this, you have to consider everything. Oh, boy. So we're reaching toward the end of the program, so I just want to take this opportunity to again mention that my book, my book, my book, my book, it's available on my website, which is Chuck Morse Speaks, that being the monkey trial. It's a PDF. And you could actually buy it right off the website. It's only $3.75. And um, it's something I worked very hard on this book. I, it took me almost a year to write it. It will be published in the coming years. It takes a long time. But in the meantime, I am making it available. I have permission to do that uh, on my own website. So you can actually buy a copy of this. And, um, you know, I will send it to you personally if you buy it. And uh, I, I urge people to do that. I mean, what the heck? What, what author doesn't, right? And that is The Monkey Trial, Evolutionary Politics in the Post-Traditional Age is the name of the book. You can get that by going to Chuck Moore Speaks. There's a little button there that says Buy Now, uh, $3.75. And by buying the book, you will get from me directly the author, a PDF of the book. This is a 137-page book. Um, it is 91,080 words. It's a big book. Um, there, are, there is media interest already, but I'm probably not going to be doing interviews until after the election, obviously, because it's kind of a non sequitur until then, but I'm setting it up so that uh, I'll be, my feet will be firmly on the ground and I'll be running after the election and ready to do interviews. And I can't wait. I love to talk about this topic, which is the theory of evolution. It's a great topic. It gets to the most fundamental question of all, which is how did we get here? Who are we? Where was the, what was the origin of human life? And while I am a religious person, I do not get into the Bible. I don't get into creationism. That's not what this book is about at least not explicitly. This book is about the science of evolution and how that theory, or the bogus science, I would argue, and how that theory, why it was adopted by the establishment of its day, and how it led to such political movements as eugenics, Nazism, social Darwinism, and communism. And I document that very thoroughly, I believe in this book, and I talk about why that happened. So check it out. Chuck Moore Speaks, $3.75. Just click on and you'll get a copy. And uh, it's building. You know, it's it's already starting. Orders are starting to come in. I mean, 
I'm not saying that people are breaking the door down to get it right now, but, uh, you know, these things take a critical mass. I mean, I'm getting orders, like a few orders a day, I'll say that. And uh, I expect there to be an uptick after the election when people can then turn their attention to this. And uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Again, it's uh, the website is Chuck Moore Speaks. The book is The Monkey Trial, Evolutionary Politics in the Post-Traditional Age. You can order that online on the website by uh, clicking on the button. It's $3.75. You get a PDF of the book. This is not a hard copy book. 137 pages, 91,000 words. It's a pretty big book. So come on down, you know. I'm looking forward to the election. I can hardly wait. I just, uh, I'm nervous. I'm apprehensive. I'm having trouble sleeping over this. I'm checking the Drudge Report, you know, at late at night, and it's just... Uh, Waiting and praying to, to, to see this happen. Um, the, um, you know, we, we shall, as the old saying goes, we shall see. Uh, I think that the momentum is in favor of our beloved governor, Mitt Romney. I think that people saw Mitt Romney during those three debates as a man who is of integrity. He's plain spoken. He is simple. He does have a very good vision. He articulated it very well. All this nonsense about him flip-flopping, this crap. Mitt Romney, you know, he's not going to get into the social issues where he has been a little squishy. And we don't want him to. We want him to talk, to get into the issues of, of, of the greater nation, you know, the, the economy. And, and that's exactly what Mitt Romney will do. So, God willing, from my lips to God's ear, I'm praying I'm going to Minion as a Jew. I, I'm attending services. I'm pulling out all the stops. I'm asking all the favors of the Lord God to please help Mitt Romney in this time. Guide Mitt Romney. Guide the American people. Let's do it for the future of this country. We have to elect Mitt Romney. We must elect Mitt Romney as President of the United States. We just must. This isn't because Barack Obama is a bad guy, but we can do better in this country. We have to look at where we are, where we will be from four years from now. Do we want four more years of mediocrity and secrecy and, and a veneer of corruption? Or are we going to drive the rascals out and start anew? This country needs that. That would be a refreshing development for every single man, woman, and child. So get out and vote on Election Day and vote for Mitt Romney and vote for Scott Brown if you're in Massachusetts. Anyway, I want to thank you all for listening. I shall return, God willing, Monday at noon. Check out my blog site, Chuck Moore Speaks, to buy my book, The, Mon uh, the Monkey Trial. And have a very pleasant weekend, everybody. <laughs>